My name is William Corliss and this is the Workplace Podcast. Brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation. Your external learning and development partner. Each week we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who will be subject matter experts, who I believe are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life, with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams, and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team, and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our next guest, who is Elizabeth Tulesia. She's a former professor of mine from Notre Dame University. She is the author of Global Business, How Leaders Communicate for Success. Our topic today is cross-cultural communication, specifically understanding Chinese culture. She will also provide insights of COVID-19 as she was there during the initial outbreak. I have very fond memories of Elizabeth in class and so much so that she invited me back to speak to her MBA class. I have also contributed to numerous publications and articles speaking about my experiences of culture and most notably Irish culture. So uh, Liddy, welcome to the the podcast. Thank you, William. It's so good to be able to talk with you again after all these years. Yeah, and you seem to have a very interesting path since last time we spoke. Uh, You've been on your travels to China under a Fulbright uh, scholarship, which I'm fascinated to hear about. Yeah, um, that was a a lifelong dream, a a career-long dream. to be able to represent the United States as an academic in China. And um, I remember I was actually in Finland at the time when I got the email saying, congratulations, you have been selected. And I just remember being in my hotel room, jumping up and down with joy um, because it's it's just a great honor, but also, a real responsibility because um, the Fulbright program is the leading international exchange program sponsored by the US government. And the purpose is to increase mutual understanding between the people of the United States and the people of other countries. And so because my area of interest has been on China for the last probably 15 years since I first went to China, I wanted to to go to China and I was able to go to Chengdu, China, which is in the um, southwestern part of of China and spend my year teaching about intercultural communication to my wonderful Chinese students. So so that was just an amazing, amazing culmination of many years as a teacher, scholar, um, researcher. And I was an avid fan of your class, um, as as you well know, I was, I was highly engaged. And 
for me, you know, you have this uh, academic uh, career in the US and then you you move over to China as part of this program. And what were the big kind of cultural differences, even though you had studied Chinese culture when you arrived in and then you had that lived experience? What were the main differences? Oh, there are so many differences. Um, when we look at culture, we can talk about cultural distance. For example, um, Ireland, Scotland, um, the UK, the cultural distance is is more narrow than wide simply because there is shared history, uh, shared religions, shared values, um, socio-political aspects. Even though they are different, they are more similar than, say, if you compare Ireland to Malaysia or to Russia or to China, Japan, etc. There's more um, the values of the culture in terms of power and identity and how people deal with uncertainty are, are larger. So yes, even though I know a lot about China, the history, the culture, the politics, the language, being from the West, being a, a US American, the cultural difference is vast. So I think for me, the biggest challenge was in the everyday details of being patient. For example, would you like an example? I'd love an example. (laughs) For example, I had to go to the bank to do something and my Chinese is not good enough to be able to have a a conversation and and deal with the technical terms. So my um, friend and tutor came with me, but I don't think I didn't think to take my passport with me because we don't do that here in the U.S. You go to a bank and you have your driver's license. And so they told me to come back and I was, oh, OK, I'll come back. So my my friend and I, because, we, you know, she was tutoring me and we made this into a lesson, went back to my apartment, uh, got my passport and came back. Then they told me, or they told my, my, my tutor who was translating, oh, but Professor Tulija needs to have her work permit letter. I had to show proof of employment. Why do I have to do that? Well, the, the government is, is a high power distance government and the culture means that you, you have to follow protocol. You have to follow the rules and it's, it's tightly regulated. So the next day, um, I, well, I had to go to my um, department, ask for the letter, wait for that. And then maybe it was two days later that I went back to the bank with passport in hand and my um, employment verification letter. And the clerk looked at one, looked at the other, looked at one, looked at the other, frowned and said, this is not the same person. And I'm thinking, what? Basically, my passport said Elizabeth and Tulija. However, my employment letter said Elizabeth Tulija. So I wasn't the same person. <laughs> At that point, frustrated, I stood up from the chair in front of that, that uh, glass window and said, I want to speak to the manager. <clears throat> and I was just so, so exasperated for crying out loud, as we say in English <laughs> in the US, just give me what I need. So that's a great example. And, and, and then in terms of that, even that interaction, your, your, if you want to call it this, your outburst, your outburst could be 
seen as not maybe culturally appropriate. Would that be would that be fair to say? Exactly, because in in China people are more reserved <clears throat> with their expressions. It's very important to preserve face. You can give face, take away face, lose face, gain face. <clears throat> China is a um, relationship culture, and they are huge um, on harmony. And it's important to keep that social harmony mm. so that um, people don't show displeasure in public. So I, an egregious error. And I know this as a cross-cultural expert, I know this. However, first and foremost, I'm a human. <laughs> and yeah. and I, I, I know this about myself. I get frustrated in situations. Yeah. So with that cultural adaptation, even though you're very much aware from the theory side of things in practice, you know, it's quite different difficult to have that cultural agility if you want to call it that and you talked um about uh losing face um and what i'm not and i don't think people know this term a whole lot gaining face can you so tell me more about that what does it mean to gain face could you give well, me an example yeah great 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 question uh the chinese character for face is mianzi. so basically in in relationships you want to maintain face. You want to make sure that, that you're in control and that you're respectful and that you honor the other person. So we gain face by um, doing something good for somebody else. I can gain face by being calm in a situation and say, ah, woming by, woming by. You know, I understand, I understand. I'll come back later. That I gain face. Um, I can lose face by having an outbreak and, and getting all upset because that upsets the associate behind the counter. It upsets the boss. It upsets the security guards. And it makes me look bad as a foreigner. Okay. Okay. So gaining face then is, is really about, is it about building up your credibility and your social capital and your, your kind of your personal brand? Is, is that what it means to gain face? Well said, William. Absolutely. You, you get these credits, you know, air quotes, credits in, in your bank, uh, you know, um, your figurative bank um, by how you behave. And it's quite interesting because in China, because it's a high power distance uh, country with authoritarian rule, there are so many rules and laws and CCTV cameras everywhere and the artificial intelligence that's able to capture your facial recognition, there are cameras everywhere and, and people actually can lose some of that social capital if they do something in public that's inappropriate, you know, something minor like crossing the street when you're not supposed to and you're supposed to wait for a light. Um, and, and you kind of get debited credits in your quote unquote bank. The, the government's able to uh, track you. Very, 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 very interesting. And that's fascinating because in Western culture, then we take pride in, in freedom, mm -hmm. you know, and autonomy where it seems to be the, you know, something very different than in, in China. And, and for me then, um, 
I I was hearing different stories uh, about China. My brother had traveled there recently and he talked about being a cashless uh, society. Is that your experience as well? Oh my goodness, yes. Everything is on my iPhone. Everything, my bank account, how I pay for things. It's so convenient. But then the flip side of it is how much of my personal information is is also being relayed to uh, different officials and, and, and the government. And I was just watching that um, video that's come out about, have you seen that? I, I can't remember the name. It's, it's just about our, our social media. And, and is this to do with, um, with, with, China and Hong Kong or what's the the, uh, the social dilemma I was just typing in ah. into Netflix the social dilemma oh, it's yes. a documentary okay. and <clears throat> it's very um very very interesting just about how our data and our information our private information is stored when we don't even realize it so yes China is a cashless society but it's it's actually when you think about it 1.4 billion people it's so easy to go through your daily um business by making these these transactions Yeah and, and another thing you were talking about is is because of um it, the the CCTV and this camera recognition that my brother was telling me as well that for people's deliveries to just leave them out the front of a building yeah no security right, nothing right. and people mm-hmm. just drop it off and then you collect at your own collection point mm-hmm. and and that's a real signal of in one way the culture has uh, a would say in Western culture a downside but the upside at that then is obviously security and a sense of community or lack of crime well that that's interesting <clears throat> we could ask the question is it a sense of community is it trust or is it a lack of trust and a lack mm. of community <clears throat> that there have to be um devices outside of our control that monitor what we do i feel very safe in china i'm not worried at all uh, wherever I go um, because of that. But then China's perspective on, on life is very different. Um, I, I feel like I can move freely and interact with people. And I think that's, I think it's, it's that interaction with, with Chinese, the Chinese people who are very generous and, and very hospitable and very curious. Um, I have more friends in China than I do in the U.S. Okay. Yeah, and, and for me, I, I, I have fond memories of China um, over 20 years ago now. I used to have a lot of co- colleagues in China. Um, and for me, it was learning all about Chinese culture, about, you know, saving face, you know, and, you know, um, all aspects of Chinese culture and, and why it's really important to invest in the relationship, mm-hmm. you know, as a, a symbol of a, a more long term uh, relationship. And what are the other things that we should know about um, Chinese culture that would be important, especially from a Western perspective, that we don't make those common mistakes or those faux pas like, a, you know, a lack of patience? What might they be? <laughs> Great question, William. I, I think um, one of the most important things is to understand that China 
generally, and we, we can generally measure a culture uh, based upon statistical data and get norms of, of a large group of people and look for the central tendencies. And of course, there are going to be variants on either side. It can be more or less of a, of a yeah. certain uh, cultural dimension. But China generally, um, throughout its 5,000 year history, is a collective culture. And that means that, that people first and foremost are responsible for their group. And that family, that, that, that basic core social network of the family and then the extended family is key. And we, while we have groups here in the US in Western culture and we have families and our family ties can be strong and they are strong of course, depending on, on your family, it's not the same. We have our responsibility first and foremost to our nuclear family. In China, it extends beyond that and to the people who, and another term is guanxi, the people who are in your network. And the network is not just about giving someone a business card or having a, a loose friendship. It's about that mutual obligation that you are committed. If you enter into a, a long-term friendship, you're committed to each other. And that's very different in China than in the US. When you make friends and um, when you go to work, there, there's that blurred line of um, your private life and your work life, work becomes your private life. People will go out to lunch together to be able to um, strengthen that guanxi, that mutual obligation and connection to each other. Um, families will have banquets and you know, dinners in honor of you. And then eventually you reciprocate. It doesn't have to be right away. Um, mm -hmm. It's just over time. And, and so that collective commitment is, is critical to surviving in, and thriving in a culture like China. And the reason why I believe that, that China was able to get a handle on the coronavirus is that you've got the collective society where, where people generally, now, of course, people get annoyed and people are individual and we, we could have another discussion at a different point on what some of the, the social changes like the one child policy for about 35 years and then the reversal of that policy and what that has done uh, to, the, to the nation. But people generally do what they're told and that's connected with the high power distance. When you have a government that has that authority, unlike in the US where our leadership was being egalitarian and, and well, you could do this. No, don't do that. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Stay inside, don't stay inside. Um, people's individual um, priorities are more important than the collective priorities. So in China, you've got people being told that they have to stay inside. And for the first six weeks, I was I, I stayed in China and I wanted to see what was happening. And I wasn't gonna jump ship and, and leave my host country of residence. I wanted to be there. All my friends were there, my life was there. So we stayed inside. I was inside for six weeks. I came out once every week to go get some 
necessities. And it was it was unnerving because back then we didn't know what was happening, but we did what the government told us and we wanted to be careful so that we're not hurting other people. And, and you mentioned there about Guan Chi. Uh, okay. And it's, it, it, it's like you're, we're returning now to gaining face really, mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. understand Guan Chi. So if somebody wants to establish a relationship with a Chinese partner, then what are the kind of ways of showing your commitment to someone or what are the symbolic acts that somebody uh, could make to create, establish that um, connection? Yeah, great, great question. Um, and the two, Guanxi and Mianza, are are related. They're interrelated. Uh, saying something is interrelated is, is more of a uh, a Chinese uh, way of, of thinking about things rather than just saying they're related, it's either or. Um, but, and again, that's a conversation for another time. But it, it, I think being in China, you have to become very observant and you have to look for opportunities, listen, watch into it. And I think it's, it's basically um, reciprocity, but it doesn't have to be immediate. Um, mm. I get to know somebody at, for example, how I ended up staying in China. I was there for my year abroad as a Fulbright scholar, and I knew I wanted to pursue um, staying in China. And in order to do that, I had to have a job and I had to make connections. And, and so in, in all of the visits that I did to universities, I, I accepted everything. Um, every invite I got, I met with people. I would bring little gifts from America just to say, you know, here's, here's a little something to start a conversation. And if the person said, oh, I'll give this to my son or my daughter, I would ask them about their family. I mean, that's part of Guanxi is, is getting to know somebody and showing that, that you're interested in them. And then that would lead to dinner. And then I might invite them, oh, um, I'm going to go do this or that. Um, would your family like to join me? Or they would ask me as a foreigner to join them. And so just little things here and there. It's just like anywhere. You, you, you build a friendship gradually. But in China, you need to realize that there has to be some sort of um, reciprocity. It doesn't have to be right away, but uh, you need to be thinking ahead of how, how might I develop this relationship? Not just because you want a job or you need to, to buy something, but because you realize in order to buy something or like a home, like an apartment or, or get a job, you have to be connected. So it kind of becomes a way of life. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience, especially with my Chinese counterparts. You know, I used to work in the electronic <laughs> industry and they would give me, you know, uh, electronic component, like a, a printed circuit board or a liquid crystal display, LCD display. And with that, there'd be a small badge or a lollipop or some little toy or something like that that was just you know, a little token of the investment in the relationship, you know, and especially if you do ask more about the background, you know, you can see that they would actually make a greater effort 
for you in 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 terms of the, the workplace so i really found that exactly. in terms of reciprocity uh really worked and i'd be interested to know then about the covid uh response in your time there and you know you were mentioning then that you had to to pivot you know so tell me a little bit more about covid and and how that uh, uh, you know uh, affected your time in china yeah, well, for the first six weeks, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I stayed put and um, just texting colleagues and friends. We were all wondering what's going on. It was quite scary. We also had an, a minor earthquake in, in Chengdu at the time and um, then got word that that um, kind doctor, the ophthalmologist, had had passed away in, in early February. It was It was very upsetting. So it was basically a time of just wondering and watching and waiting. And I remember um, thinking about, I should, we, we've talking about everything's electronic and on your phone. I thought I should go to the bank just in case something happens and have cash. But when I went to the bank, I thought, you know, I wonder if if um, COVID could be found on money. And so I just made sure I used gloves at the machine and I put the I, I took out a lot of money to have just in case and put it into a sealed plastic bag. And, you know, so all these these little things. And then we started they started having on apps where COVID was found and it was a little freaky to see that there was um, you know, a family, a unit um, in the apartment building next to me and that somebody at the store where I shop had it, they closed it down to sanitize. It was bizarre. It was just bizarre. And I kept waiting and wondering and watching again when the internet was gonna go out because that, that's a real challenge in China with the VPN and trying to do one's work. And <clears throat> the internet started to slow. And so I started to consider my options. And of course, texting with people, a lot of um, the foreigners just, as soon as they could, they, they just got out of there. And probably because they had children, <clears throat> excuse me, and they, they didn't wanna take any chances because things were so unknown. I considered going to Hong Kong and I actually had purchased a, a plane ticket because I have good friends there. I used to, to live there and, and teach at a, a university there. But as soon as I got my plane ticket um, in the news, they're talking about you have to quarantine. And, and so in, in conversations back and forth with my, my friends, we were talking about um, how are we gonna get me into the country <laughs> and to their apartment so I can quarantine there rather than having to be stuck in a hotel. And to make a long story short, I just stayed in China. Okay. Um, but then because I have family members in the US who an elderly mother and a, a developmentally disabled sister, I, I decided I have to go back before the borders closed. And all these considerations one has to take into account when you are a foreigner. And I got one of the, the last flights out. And for the last eight months, I've been here in the U.S. Yeah. as a caregiver. Okay. So I've really okay. had to pivot. Okay. And I'm going to talk about that, that pivot in, in, a, in a second. Um, but I'm really interested about the contract, uh, contact tracing. So were you able to, did the contract tracing app, was that able to, identify your neighbors and identify a shopper or was it 
was it that did you, you they were just identified as close contacts? Did they name them specifically or? No, no naming specifically. It was just that you could see in first you'd see a map of Chengdu mm. and then you could could um, um, zoom into your district okay. and then keep going deeper and deeper. And then you could see your neighborhood and it would just show um, a dot where there was um, a family or, or groups of people. But no, they did not identify Okay, and and it seemed quite uh, quick uh, in terms of their approach, uh, especially when you think of European governments and um, especially the Irish and UK governments in terms of government communications. Uh, so they had that contract uh, contact uh, tracing uh, up quite quickly. How do you how do you see the difference between, we'll say, even Donald Trump and the Chinese government? How they uh, handles the COVID situation in terms of government communications. And I see you smiling there. People can't see that. So yeah. this, this is going to be good. Well, it, it's, it's a great example of how different cultures with their values, their beliefs, their attitudes, their norms handle things. And again, I go back to the biggest contrasts on cultural dimensions. And, and I've mentioned cultural dimensions several times, and that is um, a science in cross-cultural management that was uh, created 60 years ago by Professor Gert Hofstede, a Dutch psychologist who had worked for IBM. And he came across all of this uh, huge data, 100,000 employees, were surveyed for workplace values. And as a psychologist and a statistician, he started analyzing and, and found patterns. And that eventually led to the science of cultural dimensions. And we can um, take huge amounts of data and, and generalize. And in generalizing about the US and China, the US is high on individualism and low, lower on um, power distance, whereas China is high on power distance and low, very low on individualism. So with Xi Jinping, the way that I compare Xi Jinping and Trump, Xi Jinping is, is like a cat, um, stealthily, um, rhythmically, um, fluidly moving around. Trump is like a bull in a china shop. <laughs> what he thinks, he says, he tweets. Um, very different personalities, very different strategies. But <clears throat> Xi Jinping is um, very strategic. He's very Chinese. Um, I cannot generalize and say Trump is very U.S. American because I don't think um, most U.S. Americans would um, behave the same way. But it's that individualism. I can say what I want, when I want, how I want. And also the fact that, hey, you know, we're, we're equals here. I'm not going to tell you to stay inside and wear your mask and don't do this and don't do that. That's why there's been so much of this um, back and forth hand wringing. And that is why we don't have a strong um, plan or policy here. In the US, um, anybody can criticize anyone. 
people can criticize the president. The president can uh, criticize Fauci, who's who's you know the chief scientist um, trying to help and and give us basic epidemiology 101 lessons. In China, you don't criticize the government. You don't criticize your officials. So we, we've got this back and forth between the US being um, high individualism and low power distance and China being high power distance and low individualism. So there's a lot to be said for for cultural dimensions, and when we we're talking about handling things, then, and you were talking about handling, you you know, your pivot, then. So so what next for you? Now you're 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 back based in the the US. I'm taking it day by day, <laughs> okay. and I'm I'm commuting communicating with my organization in China and. We have a, a great relationship. I work as an educational consultant for a, a, um, a small startup uh, school. And uh, right now we're working on some really exciting projects for family education. And um, they understand. They understand that it's difficult to come back right now. I could go back, but I've got the family obligations. In China, that's called filial piety. You take care of your family. Your family comes first. So they understand. And so it's day, It's literally day by day just trying to figure out how do I, I balance my work, um, the caregiving of my elderly mother who is in a nursing home who I can't see, um, as well as caring for my um, developmentally disabled sister with whom I live right now. Um, it's a challenge. and And I think... As everyone's saying that phrase, the new normal is we have to be flexible. We have to deal with uncertainty. And isn't that what life is about anyway, being yeah. flexible and dealing with uncertainty? We, we, none of us know what's going to happen tomorrow with or without COVID. No one, none of us know what's going to happen in the next minute. And I think mm. um, I am just learning to, to just be um, open and ready to pivot again. <laughs> and I'm I, what I'm doing right now, William, to keep myself sane is working on getting my new business ready to launch. And it's going to be launching soon. And I'm excited about that. So um, that plus making sure I go out and get fresh air every day and walk in the park for about seven kilometers. That's what I do. I think a lot of people can identify with that uncertainty and especially, you know, the family care uh, aspect. A lot of people, you know, are, are greatly affected by this, whether it's elderly parents they're taking care of or, or young children. I think that's mm-hmm. uh, COVID has really kind of put a, a spotlight uh, on that. And, you know, I, I applaud you for for doing everything you can for your, your family, which is great. And you're mentioning then the, the pivot again. So these, there's, there's, there's these green shoots appearing of, of hope for yourself, you know, in terms of your new business venture. So tell me more, because you were talking before about an ebook and a, and a platform and a podcast. Can you tell me a little bit more about your future plans? Yeah. Um, when, when I was in China on my Fulbright um, grant, I just decided that I was going to take a leap of faith and take a huge risk and do what I've been wanting to do for a long time now. And that is um, kind of shift from being an academic, again, pivoting, 
um, to to being a solopreneur. And how we met was through an online course um, I had had put together um, many years ago. And I've just decided that I'm going to create my own platform, my own website. It's called Global Biz Leader. And I have I am working on a trademark for my um, Intercultural Academy for Global Leadership. And I'm going to be offering an array, an array of courses, coaching, and consulting for working professionals. I think what I've realized over these years doing executive education at the different universities uh, where I've worked has been my passion and just helping people understand how do we communicate with each other? How do we interact better? How do we have better emotional intelligence, better cultural intelligence? So I'm um, getting ready to roll out um, a couple of courses. One will be uh, attached to my my signature. Uh, it'll be my signature course attached to my book, which is going into its second edition next year with Routledge. And um, it's going to be an eight-week course on intercultural communication for global leadership. And it's, it's the course that you took. It's now a, a, a new and revised version. And hopefully um, you'll be able to come on as a guest speaker for that. I've um, turned that into an ebook so that people can, I'm sorry, not an, it is, it is an ebook platform um, or format, but I have a mini version, like a 30 page uh, mini ebook, um, which you allowed me to use your, your great story about identity and how you view yourself in, in your multiple identities. And that's going to be a product that people can purchase for a good price. I do a lot of um, cross-cultural assessments. In fact, I just we just launched with the Hofstede Insights Group our new CAP profile, the Cultural Adaptability Profile. And that's looking at how does personality and culture interact and how can we learn about ourselves to adapt better when we are working in a foreign environment. So I have a lot of great options on my website that will be available to educators, business people, entrepreneurs, um, anybody who is interested in learning not only about cross-cultural issues, but issues of, of diversity and inclusion. How can we all become more aware of our differences of politics, religion, race, ethnicity, language, age, gender, etc.? How can we become confident in accepting differences rather than brushing them aside and saying we're all the same? As Professor Hofstede said so aptly, we all have basic human nature, but it's our culture and our personalities that make us different. And we all have different lived experiences. And if we can begin not to point out and say, you're different, you look like this or you are that. No, not, not to do that. But if we can begin to understand and see that other people think, believe, behave differently than I do, then I can look at their perspective and, and try to find common ground with their perspective and not just my own. That's my goal. That's my goal um, for however long I'm, I'm here on earth is just to grow as a person, 
but also in my circle of influence to be able to help other people grow as well. And, and the goal is, is that, that for common good, that as human beings, we can thrive in our diversity and not just survive. Yeah, and thank you for sharing it because that's the, the you know the if, to use your words the goal of this podcast is to make a a difference in people's lives. So I really appreciate you uh, appreciate you coming onto the show for that. If people were to get in contact with you in terms of your website or maybe social media, how might they get in contact with you, Elizabeth? I think right now the best way is through LinkedIn. I have both a, a personal and a business LinkedIn. Um, they could just Google um, my name um, or go to LinkedIn and, and put in Elizabeth Tulija. And, and that way they can be directed to my website, which is imminently going to be launched. And um, so that would be the best way. I must say, I love reading your blog posts on China through LinkedIn. They're fascinating and, and insightful. So if people want to get in contact with Elizabeth, um, Talija is spelled T-U-L-E-J-A. Um, and if you do connect to it, uh, Elizabeth, you will not be disappointed. That is for sure. <laughs> So, Elizabeth, that is our time now for the end of this podcast. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on to the show. I'm looking forward to being a guest speaker uh, on your show again. Every time we connect, I'm always learning something different. Um, I do highly recommend your your book, Global Business. Um, it's a fascinating book. Um, it combines practical uh, elements and stories along with the theory that you have, uh, I suppose, uh, narrated through this uh, podcast so eloquently. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, William. You're a very special person and it's been great to keep in touch with you over the years as, as we all uh, go through our journey called life. So it's been a pleasure, William. Thank you. You're very welcome. Keep well and keep safe. You too. Okay. That's it for this episode of the Workplace Podcast. My special thanks to this week's guest for a wonderful discussion. If you want to get in contact with a podcast about a workplace topic or a particular challenge that you're facing, contact me via Twitter at Different Paths. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, William Corliss, C-O-R-L-E-S-S, or go to my website, www.yellowwood.ie. Yellowwood your external learning and development partner, provider executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organization.